This morning, we continue our series, and as, as many of you know, and we've been going through a series called Behold Our God. And we've been talking through the names of God, and some of you may wonder, well, okay, how long is this series going to go? How many names of God can there be? One book I was reading last night said, this is one of 800 names of Jesus. And now, now there's a lot of different ways to define names. 800 is probably a little high because they're taking every description and calling it a name. But there are a lot of names of God because God has revealed Himself in a lot of different ways. This morning we're just going to take three more. And by nature of of trying to move through pretty quickly, three a week goes pretty quickly. And so we can't deal with them in complete depth. But hopefully we'll give you enough views of the diamond that is the character of God to get you to study a little more and dig in a little bit more. This week... We had our, our softball game, and our particular team, VBC2, we had a doubleheader, and which was really, really a lot of fun. I enjoy softball. But I've got to tell you, by the end of two games, I was walking like this. <laughs> and we're going to in and out and my kids are trying to push me, and I'm like, no, stop, it hurts too much. I don't remember that happening ten years ago. Aches and pains happen, right? As we get older, aches and pains just seem to follow us. My kids will ask me, how old are you? I'm like, I'm... I'm f- <laughs> Usually I say 39. <laughs> That's been a while. I'm 48. And they're like, wow. That's really old. Happy does that to me too, but I think that's... <laughs> yeah. And, and, and you know, I think I've mentioned this before. One of my kids was like, Dad, did they have cars when you were little? <laughs> Thanks, son. Yes, yes, they did. What? <laughs> you could unplug the little cord and carry it with you. <laughs> Just didn't do anything. Get a little dial thing. <laughs> but we get older, right? And our, and our, our bodies, unfortunately, age. And, but, but this morning, we come, and I, I want to start by talking about a God that never gets old. A God that is everlasting, that is from the beginning to the end. A God that never ages in terms of aches and pains and somehow starts forgetting things. I still can't find a piece of paper I had with me this morning. But God is altogether different. Praise God. And so we want to start this morning with the, the name of God, Everlasting God. The Everlasting God. In Hebrew, it's El Olam. El Olam. If you remember, El comes from the word Creator God or Powerful God. It's short for Elohim. And Pastor Andrew talked about that a, a few weeks back. And those are finally on the website now that Don's back in town. So I encourage you to go back and listen to those. But um, Elohim, Mighty God or Creator God. And then Olam means without time or without age. And it has to do with that God had no beginning or end. Before the very first second ticked by, God was. After the end of all things in this world, God will be. Isn't that amazing to think about? He existed before all things and will continue to exist forever. But part of when we think of Alam and and eternal and everlasting, this is sort of where our our minds can sort of get a little weirded out. We want to think of God as above and beyond time. Not constrained by time. 
Time is something you and I are constrained by. It affects us. And this afternoon will be later than it is now. For God, He is completely other than time, one author wrote. And so when we, when we begin to think about how can a being be completely above time and other than time, that's hard for us to think about. I can remember a math class when I was first trying to, to grasp the concept of infinity. And that infinity times infinity is somehow different from infinity, but yet it's the same. And you know, your head just starts to hurt. And when we come to this aspect of God, our heads start to hurt, but in a really, really good way. Because the fact that God is everlasting is what makes Him God. And what makes Him altogether different from you and I, doesn't it? I mean, think about what if, what if God wasn't everlasting? What if God was only going to be God through 2015? What hope do we have for the future then? None. It's it's sort of weird to think about, right? And so we assume that Godhood requires Him to be eternal, to be everlasting. And and one of the reasons for that this name is because it describes His very essence. This is one of those names that is the same as His attribute. And we talked about attributes of God three, four years ago, and we talked about His eternality. And and this this aspect of God is what affects all other names of God. And as I was thinking through this this week, just trying to get my head around what it means to be everlasting, then I started to think about, okay, this actually sort of modifies every other name of God, doesn't it? Every other character of God. For instance, when we say the God who sees, that we talked about last week, right? El-Rohi. The God who sees or understands, do, are we saying that He sees or understands all the time? Everlasting's assumed, Right? What if he was the God who sees sometimes? No confidence, right? And so this everlasting is, is, is an essential part of who God is that affects all others. Today we're going to talk about that God provides. What if God only provided sometimes? What do you do with that? There's nothing you can do with that because it changes who God is. If I go to my wife and say, I love you sometimes. Sometimes. What is she going to do? <laughs> Punch me, sock me. That had some reactions. Yeah, that doesn't mean... But I love her sometimes. Isn't that really special? <laughs> the wives are going to shoot me this morning. No, it makes no sense to only love sometimes, but yet in human sense, we fail. But in God terms, in God sense, He is eternal. He never fails. He is always the same. He is the God who was, who is, and who evermore shall be. Turn to Genesis chapter 21 with me. And as you know, as we study through, we're progressively studying through the names of God as they're revealed in Scripture. And so we see that God, through different circumstances, keeps revealing a different aspect of Himself. And it's like turning a diamond and seeing another facet. And in Genesis 21, we see the very first use of El Olam the everlasting God. Genesis 21, and we'll be looking at verses 25 through 33. And if you, if you have been here the last few weeks, you know that we've been following the story of Abraham through Genesis. And over and over, God is revealing a different aspect of Himself to Abraham and then to us through His inspired Word. And we've seen Abraham make some mistakes, right? With the whole Hagar thing and Ishmael and then 
um, first suggesting to God, you know, I don't have a child, so what about Eliezer? He can be my child and heir. And, and then Ishmael through Hagar. And God kept saying, no, I have promised. I am faithful. Trust me. And we saw El Shaddai, the Almighty God, last week that, pro- that supplies every one of our needs. And so here we come to Jacob's been growing and he's had some some different points where his faith has been growing. Isaac has been born at this point. And we see an interaction with Abimelech. And Abimelech is is one of the guys that Jacob was traveling near his city and he told Sarah, hey, tell him you're my sister because you're really gorgeous and he's going to to see you and he'll kill me and, and want to take you as his wife. Just tell him. Uh, you're my sister, which I'm not sure what that accomplishes because then he still tries to take her as his wife. But And God intervened and protected. And, and they're living close to each other. At this point, Abraham's, Abraham has settled down in Beersheba, which is at the southern tip of, of Israel and southern tip of the Promised Land. And Abimelech is actually close by in another city. And so they're having some run-ins with some of their, their flocks and, and um, the, the grazing land for their flocks. And sort of the details of this story that we come to is Abraham has built a well and Abimelech's men have said, that's not your well. And so they're fighting over a well. Now, we don't think of that much. Most of you did not fight with your neighbor over a well this morning. Most of you turned on your faucet and got water out of a faucet. But in this area, especially this is down in the Negev, down in the desert portion of Israel, water is life. And water means you're able to live somewhere, you're able to settle somewhere. And so this was actually a huge deal for them, even though for us it's like, oh, okay, it's just a well, you know, build another one, I don't know. This would have taken time to dig the well, to line it, to seal it. And so there's this debate over this well. And that's where we pick it up in in verse 25. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized... Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. He's sort of playing dumb, and we don't know whether he actually knew or not. But what happens here is Abraham decides to resolve the situation. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, these seven ewe lambs will, you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. <laughs> He's making a treaty of ownership of this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba. And Beersheba means um, well of, of seven. And so he makes this, this oath there. Because there, there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba, and Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham, and this is where we see the name of God, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And we see his name, El Olam, in the name of Yahweh, El Olam. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. And so we, we see this picture, and this may not sound as, as dramatic as some of the other stories that names of God have, have come from, but what's interesting is this is about the promise of the land. This is about settling the land. What had God promised Abraham? I will give you a land, and I will make you a, a multitude of people. 
And this is the land side of that, showing that God is faithful in all that He has given. When you dig a well, what does that imply? What was that? You're settling. You're living there. When you plant a tree, it it lets you know that you're going to be settling there. You are looking at the long haul. When you plant a tree in your backyard, are you the one that enjoys that right away? No, we, we have a variety of size trees. We have a big one that someone else planted before us, and that's where the treehouse is. That's where the kids play and really enjoy it. But somebody else, 40, 50 years ago, planted that tree that we're enjoying. Now, we've planted a number of trees, and they're all about this high. And I guess you can get some shade if you crawl under it and sort of wrap yourselves around the little tiny trunk. But we plant it because we're looking for a, a, a settling, a future there that... Our kids will enjoy it as they get older, and someone down the road will enjoy it. I remember visiting Beersheba in one of our trips, and we actually stopped outside the well and read this passage, which was a really special experience, and there's a tamarisk tree there. I don't know if it's the same one, but a really interesting visual. And our Israeli guide was trying to describe to us the importance of trees in Israel, even today. They said, Today, when we settle a land, one of the symbolic things we do is we plant a tree. Because that represents that this is the land that was given to us. And as as I read this passage and think about that, this represents Abraham seeing that God is fulfilling his promises. Isn't that cool? That God does what he says. And that Abraham is trusting him and so he settles and digs a well and plants a tree. Because God said, this is my land, and so I'm going to obey and take this land. We see these events and this settling having a a significance that goes far beyond Abraham as we think of Isaac and Jacob and the children of Israel. And, And yes, they went to Egypt for a time because of the famine, but eventually come back and take the land. The everlasting God is working through all things. And so this is where we first see El Olam. We see it in the context of faithfulness. We see it in the context of God is able to keep His Word because He is everlasting. A couple of thoughts about everlasting God. and I have little bullet points in your notes. And On each of the names of God, we don't have time to pull in everything. Otherwise, we'd take a few weeks on each name. But just a couple of thoughts. The first one there is the everlasting God's love never runs out. And this goes back to our, our, some of our statements about Olam and what it means to be everlasting. If God is not everlasting, His love ends. The only way that His love never runs out, it continues to us as if He's everlasting. If you read through Psalm, you, Psalms, you see that connection over and over and over again. For instance, Psalm 103.17. But the steadfast love, and he's describing a love that doesn't end, The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to children's children. And so when we think of an everlasting God, we should also think of an everlasting God who loves us in an everlasting way. Second point there is an everlasting God is everlastingly faithful. God's ability to keep His Word forever is tied to His eternal existence. This goes back to what if God stopped being God at the end of 2015? Could you trust any of His promises then after that? No. It's required that He's everlasting for Him to keep His promises. And so the fact that we know that He's everlasting gives us incredible confidence 
in an everlasting rock. And so we see throughout Scripture, God is described as everlasting, but His promises are described as everlasting. The two are together. In Psalm 105, we read, For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. There's that concept again. But then adding to His faithfulness and His faithfulness to all generations. Not through 2015, not through 2016, not just for me, but to all generations. An everlasting God is everlastingly faithful. So sort of su- the next point sort of sums that up. The, the fact that He's an everlasting God really stresses the unchanging aspect of God's character. All of His attributes are everlasting. I mentioned love and faithfulness. We could go through every one of those. His mercy is everlasting. His grace is everlasting. Because God is everlasting. Just think about that for a moment. Enjoy that. When we worship, we worship an everlasting God. Some of our songs this morning, a couple of them, talked about that. Psalm 25, verse 6 says, Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from old. They have been from of old. And the psalmist there is reminding us, not only will they last forever, but they've been forever. When I think of an everlasting God, I think of an enduring God with stability, security, and permanence. Think about those words for a minute. Stability, security, and permanence. I know many families right now, your life feels like there's not a lot of stability. Not a lot of permanence. Not a lot of security. What a blessing to know that our God is still the everlasting rock that we can cling to. Because in this world, there's not an enduring stability. There's not an enduring permanence other than in Christ, in God. Cling to Him. Trust Him. That is what gets us through some really difficult changing times. J.I. Packer talked a little bit about some of these things and the unchangeableness of God's character. And he wrote, God's love does not change. He is from everlasting to everlasting. God's character does not change. Strain or shock cannot, can alter the character of man, but nothing can alter the character of God. God's truth does not change. It is forever settled in the heavens. God's ways do not change. He still deals with people today as He did in the Scriptures. God's purposes do not change. The Lord is not a man that He should repent. God's Son does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? That is the God we worship. That is who we sang about this morning. A couple of corresponding names and and throughout some of the names, sometimes there's other names that um, say pretty much the same thing and so we bring them in. In this case, the first and the last. The Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. In Isaiah 48.12, we read, Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel whom I called. I am He. I am the first and the last. And he's referring to the everlasting aspect of his character. I'm the first. I have always been. I am the last. And he's not saying he begins and he ends. He's saying he is before all things and after all things. He is God. Flip to Revelation 21, 5 and 6. Keep a finger in Genesis. We'll come back there for the next name. But flip to Revelation 21, 5 and 6. And this is again speaking of the one that is seated on the throne of God Almighty. 
And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, and this is at the, at the end of time as we know it, as the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And God is reminding us of His eternality. When you see Alpha and Omega, that's referring to the first and the last letter in the Greek alphabet. It would be like us saying from A to Z. And we're not literally saying from, from the letter A to the letter Z, right? We're saying it, it covers everything. And so when we read the Alpha and the Omega, He is everlasting. He covers everything. He is the beginning and the end. Just for fun, you're at Revelation 21. Flip over a page to Revelation 22, verse 13. And this now is Jesus speaking. Some of your Bibles have it in red. There's reasons why they do that. It's not just that they arbitrarily said, oh, I think this is Jesus. In verse 16, we know, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. We know this is Jesus speaking. And Jesus, in verse 13, says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Same titles. Same words. And, and so many times I talk with people who are like, I just don't know how Jesus can be God. I don't think Jesus ever claimed to be God. I, I, when we see little nuggets like this, treasures like this in Scripture, we should take note because Jesus is saying He is God by saying this. When He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, I am the A to the Z, I am everything, I am the first and the last, beginning and the end, He is taking titles that have been given to God the Father and claiming them for Himself. That is significant. Jesus is God. And we worship Him that way. So that's just a little bit of fun theology nuggets there. Implications, applications of, of the everlasting God. We'll move through these pretty quickly. First is that we should trust in the everlasting God and let go of worry. He is always there. The everlasting God is trustworthy in every moment. There will never be a time that He is not there. We see that through, through Scripture. We see uh, an idea of protection and being able to run to Him tied with the fact that He's everlasting. And that makes sense, doesn't it? In Psalm 91 and 2, Lord, You have been our dwelling place to all generations. So He's speaking of, of that He's everlasting. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever You had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, You are Elohim. You are God. And that's why He is a dwelling place that we can trust. In Deuteronomy 33.27, the eternal God is a dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. Isn't that beautiful? He is an eternal dwelling place. His arms are everlasting to guard, to protect, to, to comfort. Isaiah 26.3 and 4, you keep Him in perfect peace whose mind has stayed on you because He trusts you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. I think that's a good word for our congregation right now. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord our God is an everlasting rock. 
It doesn't matter what else is changing. God doesn't. Trust Him. Cling to Him. Second implication is the everlasting God gives strength to the weak because He is never weak. He is everlasting. He doesn't fade. He doesn't suddenly disappear. The everlasting God gives strength to the weak because He is never weak. It's a verse we sang about this morning and Joshua read for us in Isaiah 40. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. The Creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Beautiful description of God. And then it goes into how we can apply that. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths, even guys that can play softball two games in a night, even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Beautiful verses, right? The author, Isaiah, roots those, founds those on the fact that the Lord is an everlasting God. That Yahweh is Elohim. Don't forget that God is eternal and everlasting. And Abraham realized that. And Abraham experienced the God that makes promises and keeps them and that he can trust his future in. Then we go to Genesis 22 and we see the next name of God. And I wish we could just dwell on, on each of these a week each, but we'd, we want to end before five years from now. So we move to Genesis 22 and the next name of God this morning is the Lord will provide Yahweh Yaira. Now sometimes you've heard this as Jehovah Jireh, right? But remember when we talked about um, Yahweh, we talked about Jehovah is actually not a correct understanding of the name of God and it was a, a taking two different names of God and mixing the letters. And so we use Yahweh as the, the name of God. Yahweh Yaira is the Lord will provide. And in Genesis 22, let's start looking at verse 1 there, just right where we left off. This is the culmination of Abraham's faith in God. This is the final test. And, and this is a difficult passage of Scripture for me to get my head around with a son and and. I just can't imagine God asking this, but God in His sovereignty, knowing that this would test Abraham and show his faith, took these steps. Let's start reading at verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I tell you. Think of even those words. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Does that ring a bell? Did God ever say that about His son? In John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only son, or His only begotten son. His one and only son that He loves. And there's the, the parallels just scream out of this passage because God is using this story as a type or to show what is coming in Christ. Mount Moriah, just just sort of a a fun thing. Remember Yah at the end of a word? What does that mean? A little bit of of lecture here. Yah is short for... Yahweh. Very good. (laughs) Yah is short for Yahweh. So whenever we see that, like we we talked about Hallelujah, 
was give praise to God or I praise God. This is Moriah. And this literally means the provision of Yahweh. And so the, the middle part, Ra'ah, is, is the middle part of Moriah. That means to see or to provide. And so even the name of the mountain is God provides, the provision of Yahweh. And so God says, take Isaac, the son of the covenant, the son you've been waiting 15 years for, the son you never thought would happen, and go offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountains of which I tell you. And God is setting up a test where He takes the most precious thing in Abraham's life and says, is this more important than me? Will you give the most important thing on this earth to you, to me, because you trust me? So we read on. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him. What does Abraham do? He doesn't say, well, what about Ishmael? What about Eliezer? What does he do? He gets up and goes this time. He obeys without questioning. We see a different Abraham here. So I get excited about this. We've got to keep going. He rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. Isaac has now grown a little bit. Some time has passed and he's a, a young man that can carry wood. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father! And he said, Here, here am I, my son. He said, Behold, the, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? We're missing something here, Dad. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. You can just imagine his heart as they're hiking and going up this mountain. Some of you have had children go off to college or move away. And you can just sort of picture some of this as he's picturing losing his only son. When they came to the place in verse 9, of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of Yahweh called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, Elohim, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. Yahweh Yireh. As it is said to this day, on the mount of Yahweh, it shall be provided. The story goes on and God reaffirms promises and I encourage you to study that. But we see here Abraham's trust in God, his immediate, his immediate and full obedience this time, his trust that God will provide. And we see the story where God intervenes and says, no, don't sacrifice your son and provides the sacrifice somehow caught in the thicket behind them. 
And the name Yahweh Yireh is, is, is one of the compound names that's mixed with Yahweh, his personal covenant name. And it's interesting that he's using his covenant name that he used when, when he promised that Isaac would be, be born and that Abraham would be a great nation. And then Yaira is that God will provide. That God will provide for every need, everything we need. And, and it's interesting, the roots of that word are provision or, or to see. And at first I'm like, okay, what, what does to see have to do with this? And um, a number of the, the authors said, well, think about the word provision. The word provision is made up of, of two Latin words, pro meaning beforehand, vision meaning to see. And so provision, providing, the idea is to see beforehand what the needs are and to meet it beforehand. If you go in our house right now, we're, our, our family's going on vacation tomorrow morning, and if you go in our house, the countertop is just loaded with food for the trip. Someone in my family, my wife, sees ahead of time that our family is going to need certain things throughout the week. She's smart that way. And she knows that we like to eat. And so this countertop is full of our provisions, what needs to be provided for our trip. Because she is thinking ahead and knows what we need. Now, what if she didn't do that? We'd get partway into our vacation, probably about three hours into our vacation, and all of a sudden it would be, I'm hungry! Where's lunch? When are we going to eat? And, and the provision is there. I know it's a silly example, but do you see how seeing beforehand is part of what it means that God provides? And it's part of why His eternality is important, because He has always been and always will be. He sees and knows every one of our needs. He knows what your needs are tomorrow and has already provided for them. He knows what your needs are next week, next month, and has already provided for them. That's what Yaira means. And when we say Yahweh Yaira, we are praising that God who provides. And we see that in this passage with a sacrifice. But as I mentioned, I I hope that you're seeing a a more ultimate provision because God's ultimate provision for us is Jesus Christ. And this story with Isaac and sacrificing Isaac is really just a foretaste, a, a, a preview of what's going to happen in Christ. The ram was the substitute for Isaac, right? Just as Jesus, the Lamb of God, a baby sheep, is our substitute. In John... We get the, what, what happens when Jesus is walking towards John the Baptist. Do you remember what John the Baptist said? Behold, in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, and he's referring to by Lamb a substitute, a sacrifice in our place. What a beautiful way that God has provided for life for us. Christ takes our place on the cross on the wood that He carried as God's ultimate provision for our sin. Isn't that incredible to think of God provides when we think of salvation? Just sort of thinking this through even more, and a, a fun thing. Mount Moriah, traditionally, and, and if we look at um, Scriptures in Second Chronicles 3.1, Mount Moriah, it looks like, and most believe, it is the same mountain that the temple was built on in Jerusalem. And in the temple, 
sacrifices, lambs were slain to pay for sin, right? And that was just a foreshadowing. That was just looking ahead to when the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ, who is God, who came and lived a perfect life, offered Himself up as a lamb without blemish in our place so that we would not have to die and pay the penalty for sin. Where was Calvary? In Jerusalem. Mount Moriah. This is a beautiful picture of God's sacrifice. Yahweh Yaira is more than... Now, now it includes that God provides for what I need tomorrow. But in a bigger sense, it means God has provided everlasting life. Eternal life. Trust Him with that. A couple of implications and applications. The first is a question. Is the most important thing in your life more important than God? Could you do this? Take the thing that you value most, and and that may be your family, that may be your, your children, that may be your job, that may be your future, your security, your retirement, that could be what what your purpose in life is. Take that, and could you give that to God? Could that be your Isaac? Because if anything is more important than God, our priorities are just messed up. And our faith is messed up. Matthew 6.33 says, But seek first the kingdom of God. And he's talking about needs and God providing for needs and worry. He says, Seek first the kingdom of God. It's about what God wants to do in your life. It's about giving glory to Him. That's the first question to ask. Is that most important? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. I think of raising a family and that is vital and that is important to me. It cannot be more important than seeking the kingdom of God to me though. Because if I replace God with family, I'm now showing my kids how to to be idol worshipers and not follow God and I'm defeating the very purpose of what I think I'm trying to do. Just one example. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That's the test Abraham was faced with. Second second implication there. If we believe that Yahweh provides, if we really believe He is able, then it's far easier to take steps of faith. If we don't believe He can provide and take care of my tomorrow, then I can't step out in faith for Him because I'm having to take care of myself. Hebrews 11, the the hall of faith, talks about Abraham and talks about this story in verse 17. And And it goes there. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham acted in faith because he trusted that God would provide, even if it meant raising Isaac from the dead. Another implication, Yahweh provides eternal life 
But that life is already ours. He is already providing. And so if He can provide eternal life, if He can do the big thing, He can do the little things and provide for my needs tomorrow. Philippians 4.19 says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Have you accepted the greatest provision of all? Or are you still fighting who Jesus is? Are you still fighting that I can somehow earn my way into heaven? That I can somehow be my own sacrifice? That I can somehow make myself good? We can't. The only provision that works is God's provision through His Son. Through coming to Him and saying, I trust Jesus Christ with my life. Everything else falls short. That's what should come to mind when we, when we hear Yahweh Yaira, the God that provides, the everlasting provider. I'd like to do one more name this morning. and This one's a little shorter, but it's the Lord who heals. Yahweh Rophe, the Lord who heals. And, and turn with me to Exodus 15. We're fast forwarding here. We're leaving Abram behind. Abraham behind. We've gone through the patriarchs and, and now we're, we're to the Exodus. And the children of Israel have been taken into Egypt and, or, or in, in um, slavery there. And now they've, they've come out of Egypt and this takes place right after the Red Sea. Okay? And, and so picture... They were at the Red Sea. God parted the Red Sea. Incredible, right? So their faith should be about this high. And in fact, the first part of Exodus 15, they sing the song of Moses and they praise God for what He did at the Red Sea. And then they set out. And they set out from the Red Sea because God has has promised them the promised land. And this story gives us the next three days. That's about right to, to start questioning God, right? We're weak, and they were weak. And so we pick it up in verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. Now, in their defense, picture what's happening. They're three days in the desert. The Negev is, is the desert. It is just desolate and empty and dry. Three days, and they've probably started to use up their water provisions, their water stores at this point, and for their animals, for themselves. And they look, and what do they see? They see an oasis. There's water. Yes! And I could just picture them running, and the first people start to drink the water, and all of a sudden, because it just was bitter. It was bad. Probably with all kinds of of calcium deposits and, and other mineral deposits that just made it undrinkable. So that's where we pick up the story. And the people of Israel, in verse 2, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would what we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Three days after the Red Sea. Just get that in our mind. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried out to the Lord, Yahweh. And Yahweh showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There Yahweh made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them again, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, obedience is tied to this, 
and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptian. For I am Yahweh, your healer. I am Yahweh Rophe. And the word for Rophe there, sometimes Rapha it's said, is to cure or to restore, to make whole. Sometimes it's used of the physician. And it's, it's, it's Yahweh saying, I am Yahweh, your doctor. It's a title. And as we look through Scripture, this healing is used not just of physical healing, but of emotional healing, of spiritual healing most often. We see a couple things out of this passage. Obedience was part of seeing the God that heals. He said, if you obey me, if you listen to me, if you do what is right in God's eyes and keep my statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. He's probably talking about the plagues there. Talking about the penalty for their sin. He goes, I'm not going to punish you with the same sickness because I am your healer if you obey me. But really, when we think of healing, our deepest need, the real need for healing, is our sin-sick hearts. Our real need for healing is our sin-sick hearts. In Jeremiah 17.9, familiar verse, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And we see that word sick used of the heart. It needs healing. And the next observation there, Jesus is the only source of spiritual healing for our sin-sick hearts. And we can go through just a whole number of verses in the Old Testament that talk about healing of the heart and healing of, of iniquities of our heart. In Matthew 9, 11 and 12, we talk, Jesus talks about being the physician, the healer. It says, And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician. And he calls himself a physician there, a rofe. But those who are sick. Isaiah 53.5 But he, speaking of Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And that word for healed in Isaiah 53.5 is the same word, rofe. Yahweh rofe is the one that can heal us with his wounds on the cross of our sin-sick hearts. We can't do it alone. Just a, a brief little statement there, I think, put in your notes about healing physical sickness. Some have taken this name of God and said, hey, we can have healing services and I can just tell God to heal who, who I tell Him to heal and He'll heal. And that's not what we see in Scripture. Can God heal sickness, physical sickness? Absolutely. But in James 5, He tells us as the church how to go about that. He says, is any of you sick? Go to the elders. Have them pray over you. God can heal, but He is sovereign. And He wants us to come to Him in prayer and trust and watch Him work. A couple of implications as we close. Yahweh Rophe can turn the bitter circumstances of life into sweet ones. We see Moses took this log, threw it in the water, it now became drinkable. A lot of people have tried to figure out well, which log would make it do that. 
we don't know. The God that parted the Red Sea can make a, a pool of water drinkable. Yahweh Rophe can also turn the bitter circumstances of your life and of my life into sweet ones. Psalm 147.3, again the same word for heal. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. See, when we get to bitter times, it's not a test of God. He is the healer. It's a test of us. Will we trust Him? Will we go to Him? Will we ask, is there sin in my life? Cleanse me. Heal me spiritually. Will we then follow what He commands and obey Him? And then we see Him work. Repentance and obedience are essential to God dealing with the bitter circumstances in our hearts. Repentance and obedience are essential. We're going to be celebrating communion. And communion is a chance that we have to celebrate how God provided. This is the everlasting God giving the ultimate provision through His Son. And the, the, the bread here represents His body that was sacrificed on the cross, freely given, His life that was freely given. The juice represents His blood that was spilled in our place. Instead of my blood, His blood was spilled because He is the Lamb of God, the provision for my sins. But this also symbolizes God's ultimate healing, doesn't it? Of our sin-sick hearts, that forgiveness that wipes away the stain of sin. It's not just about avoiding the punishment, and He took that. It's about the cleansing that comes and the healing that comes. And I'd like to read 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Get rid of the sin, but live to righteousness, life to the full. By His wounds you have been healed. Yahweh Rophe. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I'd like to come to God in thanks for what He's done. Bow your heads with me. Lord God, we praise You for Your work on the cross. For that sacrifice, Lord, that You provided in our place. The Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world. Lord, may we trust that You are a provider of our future, of our, our eternal life, and also of our tomorrow. Lord, we also praise You that You are a healer. That because of the blood You spilled, your, your righteousness is imputed or given to us, placed on us. A righteousness we cannot earn, we do not deserve. But, oh Lord, we are grateful for Your grace and righteousness. Thank You for being Yahweh Rophe, the God who heals. And for doing that forever. We praise you and remember you this morning. In Jesus' name.